have fought for myself. And that is why I'm still here. So nobody really wanted to jump on board and say, yes, hi, uh, we are an HIV known hospital. I mean, there's a very, very, very good chance that this gentleman would have never engaged in care. It's a very stigmatizing disease, I think. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Redefining HIV podcast. This is a show dedicated to exploring the intersection of HIV AIDS healthcare with other social justice issues. I'm your first co-host, Anu. And I'm your second co-host, Anshul. We're two soon-to-be medical students with a passion for HIV healthcare. In our first season, join us as we talk to patients, healthcare providers, social workers, and others across the nation on the HIV care continuum. Through these conversations, we hope to highlight different social, clinical, and scientific issues faced by people living with HIV. Before we dive in though, remember to follow us on social media where we post episode teasers, guest spotlights, and general HIV care information and resources. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at RedefiningHIV. On today's episode, we welcome Teresa Minukas, a nurse manager at a large academic hospital where she's worked to lead a new HIV program that's aimed at leveraging community health resources to reduce barriers to care access. We'll explore her motivations, current work, and future goals within HIV care with her experiences spanning from rural health to hospital work. Hello, Teresa. Welcome to our show. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is my first podcast debut, so very excited. <laughs> well, we're very so excited glad. to have you on. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, well, we wanted to start. We know right now you're working in a large academic hospital as a nurse manager. Um, but before that, you've kind of had an interesting path with um, a lot of the community health work you've done. And so we were kind of just interested in hearing what were your motivations for initially going into community health? and kind of just hearing a little bit about that journey before you got to your position now. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to kind of fall into this by perfect circumstance. Um, when I went to nursing school, I had no concept of what kind of nursing I wanted to be a part of. I thought I wanted to work in a big you know, trauma unit or something. And as I was going through school, I went to Northeastern University that has the co-op program. And so you get to you know, try out different aspects of nursing. And um, I had a really fantastic public health uh, class that was run by my mentor, Catherine O'Connor. Um, and she just inspired me. I mean, the kind of work that she did, I was like, this is so cool. I didn't even know that public health nursing was really a thing. Um, and I went abroad for a co-op to do, to basically do rural healthcare in Guatemala for a summer. And wow. that just really lit a flame for me too. And so by the time I got back to the States, I was like, I don't want to work in bedside medicine. This is my shtick. I want to be out in the community, bringing yeah. healthcare to people that are not accessing it because that was a lot of the, what I was seeing in Guatemala is this amazing healthcare that was happening despite having close to no resources, you know, but people were right. 
generally well and connected and they were using kind of novel ways to to connect with people and so you know That's that amazing. was very much in line with what was going on with with the work that Catherine O'Connor was doing um, she runs a program uh, called health innovations which is basically a mobile health van that'll go into communities and bring you know HIV testing and STI testing referrals to care substance use disorder kind of assessment and referral to the community. Um, and that I think was just so wild to me. And I was, you know, in love with that. Um, to think that I would get up in the morning and go, you know, park out inside of a homeless encampment and, and provide healthcare there. And then the next night be working outside of, you know, a gay club, you know, overnight passing out condoms and doing health education. I mean, it's just so diverse in terms of the kind of work that you do. Um, and it was really impactful to be in kind of these high-risk communities, accessing people that hadn't accessed care in 15, 20 plus years. And to be that touch point and be able to kind of unpack the plethora of things on somebody's plate that people may not typically consider healthcare, but are the reasons that they haven't seen a doctor in so long, or they haven't yeah. taken their blood pressure medication or had the HIV test. It's you know, it's very rewarding and it's very complicated. And I think it definitely push, pushes all of us as a team to, to get creative. Um, and I think that's really where I learned the impact that a nurse can have on a, on a person's life. Um, and to be able to sit down with somebody and look at them not as a diagnosis or a risk factor, mm -hmm. but as a whole person. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's complicated. People are complicated, man. We, yeah. we come with a lot yeah. of stuff and we're all very, very different. And I think, you know, that to me was just, uh, I, I can't really imagine doing anything other than that. And so I, I hunkered down and started working with Catherine on the van and that really just, you know, it felt good to, to do good, you know, and to, to have high impact and to work hard and feel like, wow, I really made a huge difference, not just a oh, that was a nice nurse difference, but that person changed my life difference. No, that's that's so amazing. I think I really like how you mentioned that um, some things that we don't think of as being healthcare and more of like the preventative measures um, and the importance of that. Um, so I think we kind of forget that, like, I think now like with the pandemic, it's kind of been brought to light that public health kind of just works in the background and you can't really see it, you know, and if you if you can't what's the saying don't they say like if if you can't see it then the public health is like working the way it's supposed to exactly yeah and i think just going off of that too so how have you been able to transition into your current work at the hospital and how has your past experience working with the community and all that you learned at the van um and in guatemala and all these meaningful experiences that you've had um how has all that you've learned influenced the way you like currently take care of your patients? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's had a huge impact. I think, you know, even stemming from the community work that we were doing, we worked so hard to stabilize patients and to try and mitigate as many barriers as possible. And we would hand deliver them to the hospital in this pretty package. And then, you know, the, the hospital resources weren't being deployed in the right way to, to help support keeping these patients in care. And so I actually, um, a colleague of mine from the van started working at the hospital and basically said, there's another position here. 
we could do what we're doing in the community with hospital resources. Like you need to come over here and do this. And so Oh. That to me seemed there. There was no way before that you could have convinced me to work in a hospital, really. But <laughs> this seemed like the perfect, you know, uh, mix of all things. You know, trying to make impact with resources is like a dream. So uh, when we got to the hospital, I got to the hospital, and I started working with these, you know, incredibly smart people that are, have the you know forefront knowledge of HIV care and and barriers and treatments and research. Um, and to see that this phenomenon of, of patients still not following up to care was still happening. I'm like, why is this happening? You know? And I think it's, it's the lack of a, a holistic care plan, the whole lack of looking at somebody as a whole person with a complicated, you know, social background and complicated barriers and resource access issues. And I think, you know, if you don't solve for those things with a patient, then you could make the perfect medical plan for them, but it's not going to work. And so Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when we got here and we started doing this work uh, or, you know, trying to provide primary care to these people living with HIV, we, we we knew that we needed to impact them in a different place within the care continuum, right? So wherever they were accessing care, between that point and our clinic, they were falling off. And so we decided we just need to go to wherever they're accessing their healthcare, whether it be the inpatient unit because they're ill enough to be uh, admitted or through the emergency room um, and to physically bring our bodies to that patient and say, hi, I'm your nurse. And I'm going to help take care of you. What is it that we need to do? Um, and, and at that point in time when they're a captive audience, when they're there, which is really the only time that you can count on to for sure have that patient hear you um, and try and maximize that time with them. So, you know, asking them, why is it that you can't come to this appointment? Why is it that you can't take your medications reliably? And, you know, sometimes it's as simple as I don't have reliable food to take with my medication. And so we deploy Mm -hmm. resources for that. I have no way to get to the hospital where I have to take six buses and, you know, two T's to get here and it takes me three hours to get into the hospital. So I'm not coming because I won't make it in time. You know, and these are very mm-hmm. actionable items. You know, there are resources for transportation. There are resources for food insecurity, but that may not come up in their cardiology outpatient follow-up or that may mm-hmm. not be the priority when they're in with a, you know, lung infection. Um, and so I think uh, it, it's successful also because patients can palpably feel the difference between going in and meeting somebody and taking care of a checkbox on a diagnosis or somebody sitting down and listening to them. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most powerful things that Catherine O'Connor ever taught me was that sometimes the most powerful intervention is just to let somebody tell their story um, yeah. and to actually listen to it. Because I think, you know, in medicine, it's very much... Uh, problem solution oriented. We've got X amount of time and X amount of dollars to make this happen. And, you know, some of the most complicated people don't fit into a 15 minute time box. And so if you can't make that time for them, if you can't take the time to listen to them and actually validate what it is that their priorities are, then, you know, you're not making much headway in terms of impacting this kind of constant cycle of being out of care. So that's what we did. (laughs) And, 
I think you bring up a very powerful point in the fact that you could create like a very complete medical care plan for a patient, but it's not enough if you're not asking those questions that get to know why there might be other social barriers towards like a patient being able to access care in the first place, whether that's like related to transportation, housing, or whatever personal barriers that they have. So it's very important to think about um, listening to a patient and making that space for them. These ideas of kind of listening to the patient, forming that connection with them and providing a comfortable enough environment that they open up to you about these things and getting past that idea of like, oh, I only have five minutes with this patient. I just need to, you know, get the exam out of the way, checklist, check, check, check. Okay, on to the next and just kind of take that like extra minute to Mm -hmm. make them feel comfortable and like they can share, you know, things that kind of go beyond just the normal with you. I think that idea has come up a lot. And I think it's definitely something that we can all learn from because a lot of times we've talked about how like me and Anshul specifically, we kind of feel powerless sometimes because a lot of these things kind of are beyond our control. But just even pointing people to different resources Mm -hmm. makes a lot of difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between needing to solve for every single problem in a person's life and that versus helping them build a foundation of support that Mm -hmm. helps them get through that, Um, building capacity in a person to empower them to take care of themselves or take charge of their health care. I think ultimately that's the goal. It's just that's a complicated process, (laughs) you know. Yeah. And so definitely in that vein with patients that you've worked with at the, the HIV clinic, have you encountered scenarios? Is there like a memorable patient story that you have with um, where you've encountered this process of like really like listening to the patient and taking that extra step to to really make them feel heard and like really dig into kind of like the what access wise they're going through? Absolutely. Yeah. Um I have 10 trillion of those, but I think there's definitely one that comes to mind. Um, it's a young woman that I started working with, gosh, maybe five years ago at this point. And um, she was perinatally infected with HIV. So throughout her childhood, you know, she had been on medication. She had been connected to care. And then kind of as an adult, as she transitioned out of her pediatric care, you know, life came up and you know, she struggled with substance use disorder and mental illness, and there's a lot of high-risk behaviors associated with that, um, with her drug use and um, sex practices. And I think, you know, it was really complicated for her to stabilize and to kind of take charge of her own healthcare. And so what that looks like in the healthcare system is a young woman who's coming into the emergency room all the time, right? And never seeking outpatient care, never being able to kind of stabilize to make it to outpatient care. And so I first met her when a poor panicked inpatient doctor called me and he's like, I have a patient here. She was about to leave AMA. I really would like her to connect with you. I really, she needs to get into care. Can you come right now? And I'm like, oh, sure. It's 5.15 at night, but yeah, I can come up right now. It's 15 minutes. And <laughs> the, the, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, the patient care rarely falls nicely between nine to five. That's, that's the only thing that I yeah. want to take home here. Um, but, you know, I get up to the floor and she is already agitated. She wants her IV out. She wants to leave right now. And so this is the situation that I'm walking into and I have to try and make an impact, right? So it's like a very daunting task to begin with. But yeah. 
you know, in that amount of time, the one thing that I could level on her with was level with her on was that she wanted her IV out now. So I went out, I grabbed the nurse, I asked her to take the IV out, and that was I think in her mind like a little checkbox. Um, made a plan for her to come back, got her a cab to go home, got her a tea pass to come back the next day, didn't see her. And, you know, throughout the course of the next year, she had over 15 different admissions to four different emergency rooms in the city for oh various, you know, substance use disorder related admissions, overdoses and psychosis and various other things. Um, and every time that I had the ability, if I was physically around and knew that she was here, I'd try and reach out to her and see her and visit her wherever she is, whether it be the inpatient side, the emergency room. Um, and at first she was very suspect. She was like, what are you doing here? Like, why, why, what do you want from me? Like, I don't want anything other than to make it easy for you to come into my clinic. And so, mm-hmm. you know, after a, a couple of these interactions where it really felt like we weren't accomplishing anything, she came in for an admission and I showed up in her room. She was throwing every single person out of her room, but I showed up. She's like, oh my God, you're here. Like gave me a huge hug in pre-COVID when we could hug people and, um, <laughs> You know, she was just like super thrilled that I hadn't given up on her yet, you know, and mm-hmm. so I sat down and had a heart to heart with her and I'm like, what, nothing changes if nothing changes. So what can we do to make it so that you would like to go to treatment? She goes, honestly, you know, I, I don't have my wig on right now. And when I don't have hair, I feel like, you know, an ugly little boy and I just don't want people to see me. I don't want to deal with life right now and especially not looking that way. And so I said, okay, you need a wig if that if I get you a wig, will you go to treatment? She said, yes. So I said, okay, wow. I'll get you a wig. So I've never been wig shopping before, um, but I educated myself very quickly. I took her like preferences. I went to the wig store, got her a beautiful, straight, dark, no bang, lace front, center part, you know, and <laughs> and I gave it to her. She lit up like, like a Christmas tree. This was like the, the greatest okay. gift that anybody had ever given her. And for her to think, my nurse just went and bought me a wig, you know, this is crazy, but like, okay, I guess I'll go to treatment. But that to me, that was her barrier to healthcare, right? She didn't, she didn't want to look not like herself. And even though that seems like not the priority to me, that was her priority. And so that is how you, that's what it means to meet somebody where they're at really, right? It it may not be one of the orderable medications in the medical record system. It, it has. It may be something a little off the beaten path, and that is okay and important and valid. And I think that was really kind of a pivot point for our relationship. And so, you know, over the course of the year, she's been more amenable to treatment. She's gone into treatment for longer periods of time. She's able to stabilize and get a house. She was connected to. Uh, mass rehab to go back to school. She wants to be like a substance use counselor herself, you know, so I think. Oh my gosh. That is so sweet. <laughs> it's a lot of hard work on her part and definitely a lot of hard work on this end. But I think if, if that's what it takes mm-hmm. to get people well again, then then that's what it takes, you know, and I think yeah. it's tough because there are so many competing priorities in the hospital and, you know, wigs are not insurance reimbursable in this case so you know there there are lots of barriers to why this isn't uh, necessarily an appealing model in some ways but I think we can show that it meeting somebody where they're at and validating what's important to them has huge impact so sure and 
even though it isn't like traditionally what you think about medical care. Like I don't think mm-hmm. any physicians going mm-hmm. into the room, like that's part of my medical step process. <laughs> I think it, it really begs us to ask like how we kind of need to broaden our view of like what is deemed medical care and what is deemed medical care here is like definitely helping the patient to feel comfortable in, yes. in a hospital in that in that environment. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that you could provide that bridge for her. Yeah, that is such a special story. I feel like my admiration for you has gone up like a thousand. <laughs> it's so sweet. Um, but yeah, I'm so glad that you were eventually able to get to the bottom of what was actually keeping her from treatment. Um, and like you said, that think, was a daunting task. Yeah, and I think, you know, I don't want to oversimplify that that it's, you know, just the wig, but I think that was really the turning point in our trusting relationship where, you know, I I don't promise her what I can't deliver. And if I say that I'm going to do something, I show up for that specific task, because I think, you know, oftentimes a lot of these very marginalized populations have experienced a lot of uh, letdown by the system in various ways. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, inevitably that leads to mistrust. And so how many times has this young woman been told, this is what I can do for you. And then it it doesn't pan out that way. And why would she believe that I would be able to help her when I say so without, you know, showing her. So I think, you know, it really plays into kind of the trust mistrust issue, which in and of itself is one of the hugest barriers I would, I would say in, in healthcare today. So. 100%. No, I was just going to agree. I mean, when we talk about like communities that are marginalized or especially like medically marginalized in that sense, medical mistrust is a huge issue. And so any way that you can like help the patient feel heard and that you are truly listening to what they request of you and you're interested in, in their life and what they might feel uncomfortable with and the problems that they bring up, like any way you can support that is amazing. I think again, your story is a testament to the power that listening to the patient, digging a layer deeper than just like medical symptoms can have. Going off of that, um, so in terms of like these barriers that you're talking about, trust, mistrust being one of them, um, what would you say are some of the biggest divides that you've noticed between being able to advocate for your patient um, in community work versus in a hospital? Because obviously, you know, in a hospital setting, there's a lot of institutional barriers and a lot of, you know, legal just a lot of mm-hmm. complications in general. So, yeah. yeah. So, so Absolutely. how I, has it been different for you? Well, if I, I think one of the things that I bring with me from the community is it kind of the, if you can't tell, I worship this woman, but the Catherine O'Connor mentality, that, <laughs> you know, uh, because she is such a fearless advocate for her patients. And I think, you know, she taught me to kind of question the systems that are in place, right? So when they said like, okay, you're an outpatient nurse, you don't go inpatient. I said, why not? Like I'm going to see this patient right now, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's not a firm, hard rule that I can't go and see that patient. Obviously that then, you know, makes it complicated for all the other outpatient responsibilities that I have. But I think what I bring with me from the community uh, which was just large, largely advocacy and explaining why the systems that were in place weren't going to work for this patient and how can we do something different uh, and bringing that right into the hospital and saying, okay, well, this is, this is the new patient referral process. Why, why can't we try something different? Why can't we have lower threshold access to care? Why can't we have nursing visits that will 
that can be walk-in visits. So, you know, they are very low threshold, low barrier to care that can keep a patient connected that has trouble sitting into the 2 p.m. on a Tuesday time slot, you know? And so I think it, it nothing changes in, in, in the structures that are in place without somebody kind of pushing against those structures and saying, why can't we do it a different way? I've done it yeah. this way. This is the reason that it'll work. Why don't we try it? And, you know, to be fair, this, this kind of case management program that we created in the hospital for these, you know, folks that were high risk to being out of care or being lost to follow up, it very much did start as a kind of an extracurricular activity. You know, we, it's not that the, the hospital didn't want to support it necessarily, but they're like, well, you want to go inpatient, you do that on your own time. You know, like that, you, this is your, your role. This is what we need you for. These other, you know, these are other necessary tasks. And that's, that's true. But so we just did it anyways, right? We did it and we would stay late and, and when the providers could see, when the teams could see, when the hospital could see that now these patients are showing up to their, their appointments because they know Teresa's going to meet them at the front entrance of the building and walk them up so that they don't have to risk you know, whatever it is that they're worried about on their trip into the hospital, that that's going to make the difference and that's, that's what we should do. And so I think once they saw that it was working, uh, they threw all of their eggs in this basket and they're like, let's, let's go, let's make this a formal program. Um, Oh, wow. And I think, you know, luckily we were able to to expand the program even because of its success. And when you when you get complicated patients into care, you now have complication complicated patients to take care of. And so it, it it kind of itself grows work. And so we've expanded the team to include community health workers um, who are wow. actually able to leave the hospital and meet patients in the community and be that kind of liaison to navigate patients in. We've added additional nurses and tried to create time and space that's protected for this work. Um, but I think, you know, that change only happened because we we did it anyways and we proved to them that it worked. And I think, you know, figures and numbers and dollars make a lot more sense to kind of larger medical institutions than some of the anecdotal success. And so... I feel really lucky that we were able to show it to them in their language as well. You meet the hospital where they were at, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think it really came very directly from the mantra of, well, why can't we do that? Wow. I love that, that, that perspective that you're bringing there too. Um, I think one tough part initially going into this is like, I think a, a push from a hospital side of almost being hyper-efficient with how patients are seen and trying to like almost reduce care to like what might be deemed like medically necessary and that mm -hmm. is it. And so it is interesting how then you were putting in your own time and effort outside of like your own responsibilities as part of like the medical system to then get these programs implemented. And do you think that like kind of that push though, where you do have to put in much more work than you might be like slated out to actually have that capacity for, um, like potentially prevents you from extending in certain ways? Like, do you think there are like still steps that you that you'd ideally like to take towards in the in the hospital environment for seeing the sort of care that your your patients that you see like have and that you ideally would want for them well yeah i think you know i think one of the the i think probably the the way that I would like to see things move forward is to have, you know, 
this lower threshold to care. And I think, you know, walk-in models work. And I think being available not only in the hospital, but actively outreaching into the communities is something that I think will only stand to impact the way that people receive healthcare. And I think COVID has really shown us how innovative we really can be and how when we get you know, pushed into a corner and there's a big problem that we have to solve for that we can step up to the plate and do it and and get creative and bring, you know, medicine outside the four walls with a, a camera or a van or, or whatever it's going to be. And so, you know, I hope that we kind of continue in that that vein of innovation and, and bringing the healthcare outside of the four walls of a hospital in some way, shape or form. I think one thing that we know intimately is that some of the most disenfranchised patients and marginalized patients don't have, you know, the fancy smartphone to do the video visit sometimes. And so, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. thinking that through and thinking, okay, we can provide care to somebody, you know, virtually, how do we make sure that they have, you know, sustained access to, you know, technology, you know, technology is now becoming so critical to healthcare that it's, you know, more or less, another barrier that we have to kind of fight through but the impacts of that the implications of that of being able to touch in touch base with a patient that is not going to make it into the hospital or that the thought of coming into the hospital is too daunting but picking up a phone call would be different for them i mean that's huge right no i i agree i think even like i was signing up for a doctor's appointment like a couple days ago and i noticed that video visit was an entirely different option now and i didn't realize that they were like just switching over to that, you know, if you, if that's what you prefer. And to us, it's like, oh yeah, like so convenient, you know, we'll Uh just take the call from the comfort of our homes, but that's definitely not what it's like for, for the people, the folks that we're talking about. So I think, um, speaking of groups that have been marginalized by our community, we wanted to talk to you about, um, HIV positive patients who are also drug users and Mm -hmm. your experience with, that population um we already know that they don't get a lot of attention they don't get the medical attention that they need um so do you have any patient that you you have specifically worked with in the past that comes to mind again trillions but um (laughs) (laughs) uh well i think you know substance use disorder specifically people who are injecting drugs in boston we're seeing you know, a cluster of new HIV infection in this population, which, you know, hasn't been the highest risk group in years past due to kind of harm reduction programs like needle exchange and um, which just inevitably decrease the risk of infection in the community. And when those programs lose funding, then we see the impact of that on the population. And so, you know, now I think in the, the past month, there were nine new HIV infections as compared to maybe in one month as compared to maybe one or two a year in in previous times in in this risk group. And so I think the numbers are staggering and these patients are the ones that have, you know, check every box of of lacking resources, no stable housing, no safe place to store their, you know, belongings, no transportation, no reliable cell phones. You know, they the, the poster child of, of, of marginalized. And I think similarly to the patient that I described before, it's, it's chaotic and it's time consuming and it's not, does not fit into the 2 PM slot. And so, um, 
we've definitely started working a lot more with the substance use disorder initiatives in the hospital who thankfully understand our qualms with our HIV patients because oftentimes it's a lot of similar populations. And so uh, in this, in fostering this relationship where we said, okay, substance use is more prevalent and becoming a larger issue for our HIV patients and the risk of HIV is becoming a larger risk for your patients. We have <laughs> like married each other basically and we work very closely with them. And so Actually, we helped them to kind of build the capacity to do a little bit of HIV screening and prevention and testing in, in their clinic. Um, and wow. they actually were able to identify a cisgender heterosexual man who didn't have any sexual risk factors for HIV, but was actually a new HIV infection. Um, and with their existing relationship with that patient, they were able to kind of refer up to us. We delivered... You know, they had delivered the diagnosis, but we were able to get him into care because of that transference of trust with a similar relationship that they had built with him by meeting him where he was at and really understanding what his, you know, complicated life story was and him feeling safe with them. They kind of, we did a little transference of trust, you know, and he plugged in with us. We are able to get his partners in and get them tested and into care. And so, you know, I think had this just been kind of a, any other clinic, there's a good chance that that, and we didn't have that that partnership with his substance use treatment providers, there's a very, very, very good chance that this gentleman would have never engaged in care. It's a very stigmatizing disease. I think um, his main concern is that people are going to think that he was a, a gay man because of the stigma associated with HIV. And I think you know, without that existing support network and then creating an even tighter support network around him, I, I'm, I feel very confident that he would not be engaged in HIV care. Luckily, that happened and he is very well engaged in care and comes in to see us all the time and it's otherwise stable. It doesn't mean his life is easy or perfect, um, but I think stable enough that he's able to engage and kind of keep in touch with us so that we can get ahead of problems before they end up in absolute life chaos. Um, and I really think that that stems from that kind of trusting relationship that he was able to develop and, and luckily transfer to us. So we wouldn't have been able to do it without that collaboration. That's, that's wonderful to hear that he could at least get that diagnosis and support that he needed. Um, but it's also kind of scary to think about the fact that um, if that relationship wasn't there, like would that have been missed? And I think that makes me kind of think about like, within the kind of community of people who inject drugs, like how, how much knowledge is there on like the, the, the potential risk factor that that lends itself to in like contracting HIV? And mm -hmm. also what ability is there right now for your hospital to like reach out to the members of those communities um, who might not necessarily have like the technological capabilities, the access to transportation needed to, to like have the like foresight or access to be able to come into the clinic for care and get that important diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I have to say that this conversation would have gone a little differently five, 10 years ago, but I think in very recent history, you know, a really inspirational group of medical providers around the city started an email chain. They got the, put their heads together and they're like, this is a problem. We need to come unified as a response. And so, you know, there are 
providers, nurses, social workers, recovery coaches, community health workers that all kind of put their heads together to say, like, how do we try and impact this? Um, and I think one of the key factors there is that they're bringing that kind of testing access and um, harm reduction and education to mm -hmm. the streets, literally to the streets, the mm -hmm. mass gas area, to the needle exchanges, to anywhere that these folks are potentially accessing care. Um, and and having those hospital employees that are not bound to the four walls of the hospital, there are community health workers, our recovery coaches that can go and actively seek people out, that can follow up with people, that can host groups, educational groups, that can hand out harm reduction material. I think because of those efforts, uh, there are fewer people on the streets that are completely disillusioned to their HIV care. I think generally they're starting to get that message around, but I think again, it comes back to access. And so you could know that you have risk for HIV or hepatitis C uh, with what your injection drug use or your sex practices. But sometimes the, the needs that are trying that the patient is trying to meet with it, whether it be not to withdraw from the substance or not to be in an, uh, you know, an unsafe situation that that can kind of supersede their concern about their HIV risk. And so I think you know, we're now, I think COVID threw a wrench into the momentum that was going behind these initiatives, but I think now the dust is settled, the, the clusters are on fire, and we are really trying to mobilize again around not just HIV testing, but prevention. You know, we have drugs that you can take, prep, you can take a pill a day and, and reduce your risk for HIV. And I think even more recently, yeah. now there's a, an injectable Cabotegravir, ropivirine as HIV treatment, but also as prevention. And I think, you know, the implications for a monthly injection versus a daily pill in terms of HIV treatment or prevention, it's huge, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But again, we run into this, this issue where in, you know, in your randomized controlled trial, you, you sample a population, but if you completely exclude people who inject drugs, now we can't yeah. use this for that indication. And so I think that's a large structural barrier to just providing access to these even more marginalized patient um, the populations who inject drugs and so i think you know if we're really going to to adapt and to grow to the needs of these patients it's really to focus our resources and our attention on how do we get the message across how do we create the access to testing and prevention how do we create the access to treatment and then how do we get the larger institutions like drug companies and insurance companies to mm -hmm. accept that this is, you know, important. And I think if yeah. we want to translate it into insurance and drug company, you know, lingo, it treatment and as prevention is cost effective, right? If you can yeah. treat somebody's HIV, then you prevent opportunistic infections and an AIDS diagnosis and the whole sequelae of, of things that come along with untreated HIV and prevent new transmission in the community. If somebody can be on, you know, you can prevent HIV transmission with a pill a day, why wouldn't, why wouldn't that be cost effective, you know? And so I think we're in the phase now where I, I think it's kind of the, we're staying past five to do the work right now and that hopefully we'll be able to show, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. We know that TLC is going <laughs> to help, but if yeah. we can show with numbers, then that's kind of where the, back-end institutional support comes from and so we're staying past five 
Yeah, it almost seems intuitive that like preventative care, if you stop the like illness before it even happens, is preventing a whole bunch of other medical conditions down the line that use up a lot of hospital resources. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not always necessarily like every single group out there has like the advocacy to like explain that they lack that access. And so it is amazing that you're like putting in work past your own time to to push for push for that sort of like access and coverage to care and hopefully um when we update in the future you know we, we're hearing a different story there and that, yeah, that, that improves. Too. yeah. <laughs> if anything hopefully everyone listening to this podcast especially those who are pre-health can take away something from yes. from your patient advocacy and your dedication to making sure that patients who are marginalized receive the proper care that they need so absolutely yeah definitely well um teresa thank you so much for um coming on to our podcast today we had a wonderful time talking to you and absolutely. we really appreciate your like thorough discussion with um all the patients that you've worked with and kind of seeing how like a lot of that has pulled on your community health principles, like where you started, and you've been able to apply that in a kind of large academic system, hospital system. Um, it, again, sometimes seems tough to make noticeable change and reform um, with these these big systems and the, the barriers that you see, but um, it's truly amazing that you're able to collaborate with a lot of other um, great individuals at your hospital work and coordinate so many like great health worker, community health workers, social workers, and others to come and rally together to support um, a lot of people in the hospital and then even breaking the four walls to go out into your community and provide the extra support. Yeah, thanks, man. It's a, it's a dream to do this work. And I feel really fortunate with the, the people that also do this work. I mean, just inspirational people. So it's, it's yeah. very emotionally rewarding to do this work as much as it is emotionally taxing. <laughs> no, it sounds draining. I, I bet. But... Yeah. So I wanted to ask, outside of being our superwoman nurse, um, <laughs> what, <laughs> what do you like to do in your free time? Oh, man. Um, I have really taken to gardening, uh, as I'm Ooh, that's sure many people one. have. Yeah. yeah. One. <laughs> Before COVID, my surrogate nickname was T, the tool man, uh, because I'm just like, very handy <laughs> and go around and fix things. But um, I've really taken to gardening. I hung like very nice lights in my, my garden and created a whole vibe out there. So Oh, it's, it's created we are here monster. for the vibes yeah. <laughs> next time we'll do the podcast from my very chic backyard thank you Teresa for coming on to our show today and thank you to our listeners for tuning in um, we learned some very important lessons from Teresa about empathy and that we need to meet the patients where they're at, about how she provides holistic care, how important preventive measures are. Um, I mean, we saw how she was able to implement a formal community health program within her large hospital system. She also left us with some food for thought by saying prevention as treatment is cost effective. And for anyone who is interested in health policy or in addressing the flaws in our healthcare system, I encourage you to reflect on this idea. 
while we know that prevention as treatment prevents medical care bills down the line, how do we convince these for-profit companies that are clearly benefiting from the existing healthcare framework, right? How do we actually get them on board with this idea? But yeah, we would love to hear your thoughts about that or anything else that we discuss in the episode. Feel free to send us a voice message via the link in the episode description or DM us on Instagram, Facebook, whatever is most convenient. That's all for today. Join us in a couple weeks as we shift to another crucial part of the HIV care continuum, which is case management. We'll be diving deep into what case management entails and how it can differ in a urban versus more rural setting. We brought on RJ and Gita, both case managers working in HIV-based organizations, but in some very different settings.